We're going to read from Jude, and we're reading the whole of Jude today. So let's turn to God's wonderful word together. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, 
In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore Amen Thanks very much and do keep that open we've got three weeks together in the book of Jude and each week we're going to read the whole letter but our focus this morning is just going to be on the first four verses so let's pray that the Lord would help us as we try and understand them together Father in heaven, as we do come to your word now, as we think about Jude's urgent appeal to contend for the faith, help us to feel the weight of these words and help us to understand what it looks like to be a people who contend for your truth in this generation. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know what your first impressions were as you heard the letter of Jude read to you just now. Maybe for some of you there was a sense of confusion. It's quite a lot of material in the book which sounds rather odd on first hearing. We read of a rebellion in the angelic realms in verse 6. We read of the archangel Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses in verse 9. And then there's a whole raft of illustrations taken from the Old Testament, parts of the Bible with which we are probably less familiar. So initially maybe there's a sense of confusion as you hear the letter read out. Maybe for others, though, it's less confusion and more a sense of concern. You see, the book of Jude is a book which deals with the darker side of church life. It speaks of false teaching and ungodly living in verse 4, those who slipped into the church and are perverting the grace of God. speaks of apostasy in verse 5, those who are turning their back on the Lord Jesus. And it speaks of people within the church, verse 16. Not those outside the church, those within the church as grumblers and fault finders. Those who follow their own evil desires instead of pursuing the will of God. You see, at times the book of Jude isn't easy on our ears. Yet we need to deal with these things because God deals with these things. And in his kindness, he has preserved within the canon of scripture, with the Bible that is before you on your lap today, he has preserved this short but significant letter in order that we too might be a people who contend for the faith. Have a look down at verse 3. Here's the heart of this letter that Jude writes. Dear friends, although I was eager, very eager to write to you, about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, literally I I felt it necessary to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy 
people. You can imagine Jude sitting down to write this letter, eager to speak of the salvation that we share, to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ, eager to expound the glorious riches of the gospel of a God who so loved this world that he entered time and space and history in order to bear our sin upon the cross. But as you can see in verse 3, that's not the letter that Jude ends up writing. He was compelled to write about other things. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude urges this church described as God's holy people to contend for the faith and to commend the faith to a generation that is moving away from the faith. You see, this isn't just a message for the first century church. This is a message for the 21st century church as well. We too must contend for the faith. We too must take our stand for Christ. Otherwise, the gospel will be lost within a generation. But before we think about what that looks like in practice, to be a people who contend for the faith, we need to begin where Jude does in verse 1, by reminding ourselves of the solid ground on which we stand. The solid ground, the firm footing from which we are called to contend for the gospel. don't know if any of you have done the long jump. Uh, before, but I'm sure you all understand the concept of long jump. You build up your speed on the runway, and as the as the takeoff board approaches, you plant your foot on the board, and then you push off and forward for all your worth to go as far down the sand pit as you can. World record, I think, is just shy of nine meters, eight meters ninety-five, which is a pretty decent distance. And so, myself and Ham, when we were on holiday in Cornwall last year. Uh, We thought we'd have a mini Olympics on the beach, as you do. And one of the events we did was long jump. But you can imagine doing this on the soft sands of a little Cornish bay is a little bit different to an athletic stadium. Firstly, the run-up itself is pretty hard on soft sand. And, of course, you go to plant your foot on what is the takeoff board in between two flip-flops, marking our takeoff line. And instead of a firm footing to push off from, your foot just sinks into the ground and you collapse forward. And you go pretty much nowhere at all. You see, if you're going to be effective at long jump, you need a firm footing from which to push off from. And if we're going to be effective in contending for the faith, then we need a firm foundation, a firm footing to push off from. And you can see the foundation there given to us in verse 1. As Jude begins this letter, he introduces himself, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And it is those three words, called, loved, and kept, that describe the solid ground on which we stand. You see, firstly, as Christians, we are those who have been called personally by God to belong to his heavenly family. There's two ways that the word call is used in the Bible. Firstly, it's used to speak of a general call to all people. Jesus, time and time again, stands before this world and he beckons people to come to him and to find life. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come. It is a general invite, an open invite to all people. But then there's also what the theologians might call the effectual call, 
which isn't a general call to all people, but a personal call, an individual call to those whom God has chosen. Think of it more like a court summons than an open invite. You see, if you're ever on the receiving end of a court summons and something comes through your door with your name on it and, and tells you to turn up in court on the 19th of July 2019, it's not like this open invite if you fancy it or not. If you fancy a day out in court, then you're very welcome. No, you've been summoned to court and you will go. And so it is with the individual who's been called personally by Christ. It is like an internal summons in your heart. The work of grace is irresistible. And you will be drawn to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's why the Puritans used to call the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. Because the Spirit of God is relentless in pursuing people and making that general call to all. Effective in the hearts of those whom God has chosen. What a wonderfully sure footing that gives us from which we contend for the faith. Firstly, we've been called by God personally. Secondly, we are loved by God immeasurably. It's a truth that too easily can become all too familiar. You are loved beyond measure by God. And if you're in danger of forgetting that this morning, if you ever doubt the love of God because of a situation or a circumstance, or maybe this morning you just feel distant from the Lord for whatever reason, then will you cast your mind back to the cross? Because the cross is the boldest evidence of God's love for you. God demonstrates, we read this in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the demonstrating is in the present tense. God is demonstrating to you right now, in the present tense, his love for you through a past historical event. When Jesus Christ gave of himself at the cross. An outrageous act of self-giving love. Here is love, we sing. Vast as the ocean. Loving kindness. As the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom. Shed for us. His precious blood. What a wonderfully firm footing that gives us. From which to contend for the gospel. We've been called personally, we are loved immeasurably, and we will be kept safe by God eternally. You see, the same powerful hands that threw the stars into space are the same loving hands that were nailed to the cross with my sin. And they are the same secure hands that will keep you safe all the way to heaven. We sing it, don't we, in that little children's song, Our God is a great big God, and he holds us in his hands. So simple, yet it's so profound. For those who trusted in Jesus Christ, you are perfectly secure in the hands of your loving Savior, and he will hold you fast all the way to glory. It is the truth that bookends this short but significant letter. It's there in verse 1 and 2, and it's there again in verse 24 and 25. These familiar words with which we end many a service to him who is able to what? To keep you 
from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And the, the response of the heart to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. What a wonderfully sure footing that gives us to which to contend for the gospel. You have been called. You are loved and you will be kept. And it is from that firm foundation that we are now called to contend as a church for his gospel. Have a look again at the appeal in verse 3 and the urgency of Jude calling his readers to listen and to respond to this appeal. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, necessary to write and urge you, appeal with you, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Now the word contend that you see there in verse 3 isn't taken from the, from the military world as many people think. It's taken from the athletics arena. It speaks of exerting yourself for a cause. It speaks of wrestling for what is right. And of course, the wrestle we're involved in isn't a physical contest like the one on the screen. It is a, it is a spiritual contest. It is a contest that will ultimately be won or lost on our knees before Almighty God. It's why we pray for Josh and Helen. That's where the battle begins and it's where it will end, on our knees before Almighty God. And so doesn't it seem appropriate when we hear this call from Jude in verse 3 that this is the day of Josh and Helen's commissioning as we pray for them, that they would contend for the faith wherever the Lord calls them to in Africa, and we pray that the Lord would sustain them, that they would contend, that they would commend the gospel to communities of people who do not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But of course, it's not just missionaries, or pastors, or elders, or ministry leaders. This is a call for all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, God's holy people. God is calling you. Can I say that again? God is calling you this morning to contend for the faith. The question is, what does that look like for you? What does it look like for you to exert yourself for the cause? What areas of life and doctrine and practice is the Lord calling you to engage in, to, to wrestle with for the sake of God's truth and God's gospel? You see, there's some saddening stats that you can read of regarding the church in the UK. According to a recent survey, only two-thirds of clergy in the Church of England believe in a physical resurrection. That means one-third don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was a survey of 4,000 Anglican clergy, and only 50% believe that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. They're frightening statistics, aren't they? Especially when the Lord Jesus stands before this world, as he does in John chapter 14, verse 6, and says ever so clearly... 
He could not be more clear. I am the way, says Jesus, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one will find life outside of Christ. No one will reside for eternity in heaven but by the saving work of the Lord Jesus. Yet it's a truth denied by 50% of the clergy. These are basic Christian doctrines which are under threat. And so contend we must for the sake of the salvation of the souls of many. But of course we don't just contend for doctrine, this is where we begin. But we must also contend for areas of ethics and practical living. don't know whether anyone received uh, July's edition of Evangelicals Now. This was the front cover don't know what you make of that as you look at the front cover of the M there on the screen. For me, it's a picture that just doesn't sit right. Those things should not go together. Here we've got a vicar in a dog's collar with a a cross around his neck, uh, a symbol of loyalty and love for, for Jesus, his Lord. Yet at the same time, he's draped in a rainbow scarf as he stands in full affirmation and support of the gay pride movement. It's just one more story of one more leader who has failed to contend for the faith, but instead has collapsed under the pressure of prevailing culture. So what about you? This is a call for us all to contend. What about you? What does it look like for us as as state education becomes increasingly liberal and secular? September 2020, as they, as they in, introduce a new area to the curriculum of relationships education, where they'll be teaching children from the age of four, LGBT plus ideologies. What does that look like for us as parents, as teachers, as a church, to engage with these things, to stand up and contend for the truth as Jude calls us to? As churches all around us, more and more churches are increasingly happy marrying couples of the same sex. What does it look like? Will we hold our line as a church? Will we stand on biblical truth? Will we uphold the good design of God, which will enable this world to flourish as the Lord intends? And as we meet people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but deny his deity... They deny his physical resurrection from the dead. They deny that he is the only way to salvation. What does it look like? Will we, will we wrestle for what is right with these people? Will we contend for the truth? And will we do it in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? You see, contending for the faith isn't about picking fights. It is about discerning error and gently correcting that error with truth. Our manner really matters. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, we're called to contend graciously. We're called to be kind and patient and prayerful as we wrestle for what is right. But of course, this will become increasingly difficult. As our culture moves further and further away from God's good design, the trajectory we are on as a society is not a happy and a healthy one. We are sliding fast into a state of godless disrepair. Hence, an urgent appeal from Jude in verse 3, that we would be a church, a people of God, standing on the gospel of verse 1 and 2, who are willing to contend for the faith, whatever the personal cost for self. There's a line in that article 
that I mentioned that says this, the point about contending is not that it guarantees success, but that we do so in obedience to scripture. This side of heaven, it never stops. You see, the need to contend will never stop this side of heaven. And we never promise success as we contend. But that isn't the main reason we're called to contend. The main reason we're called to contend is out of obedience to God. Because he is calling us to this morning. In Jude, verse 3. And so contend we must on areas of doctrine and ethics and practical Christian living. You've been called, loved and kept. We have a firm gospel footing. We have an urgent gospel appeal. And lastly, we have a loving gospel warning. Verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago has secretly slipped in among you. There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. These people aren't outside the church. Do you notice that? They're inside. They've slipped in. That's why Jesus in the Gospels refers to false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. Because at first glance they look like genuine believers, but deep down in their hearts they are wolf-like. Whether intentionally or deliberately, their teaching and their behavior is causing damage and destruction to the precious bride of Christ. They're described as ungodly people in verse 4. And we see that ungodliness worked out in two main ways. Firstly, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. It's what some people call cheap grace. Doesn't matter how we live. Doesn't matter what we do because God's a loving God and he's a forgiving God and he's a gracious God and he will accept us just as we are. And of course there is so much truth in those statements. God is a loving God. God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. God is an accepting God. He does accept us who we are, but he will not leave us as we are. God loves us far too much for that. He does not condone sin. He will not continue to let us live in ways which will damage ourselves and the people around us. He loves us far too much for that. We see the same principle in Romans chapter 6. You'll be familiar maybe with these words. This is what the Apostle Paul says. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Should we just carry on in our old way of life? regardless of what God has called us to do, so that grace may abound all the more? What's Paul's response? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How then can we live in it any longer? You see, grace isn't just about forgiveness. It is about transformation. God is in the business of making his people more like his son and our saviour, Jesus Christ, which means saying no to ungodliness. If you're going to become more like Jesus Christ, it means saying no to ungodliness. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 2. Quite small words, but let me read them to you. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And what does this grace do in the heart of a believer? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for what reason? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace makes us eager to do what is good. Grace purifies us as a people for God. Grace causes me to say no to the ungodliness that resides in my heart. And grace causes us to say no to the ungodliness that resides within this world. And that's what it is to contend. It is to say no to ungodliness as we yearn to become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, because that is the work of grace in our heart. And that is what it is to keep in step with the Spirit, because it is what God is doing within us. Firstly, beware of those ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. And secondly, beware of those ungodly people who deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. And of course, the second warning is really an extension of the first. We're not just called to accept Jesus as our saviour, but to live with him as our Lord. It should be our great aim in life to bring every part of our being under the lordship of Jesus. Luther put it like this, describing those in verse 4, they regard themselves, not him as Lord. These people are living with themselves as Lord instead of Jesus Christ. I wonder at times, are we in danger of doing the same thing? In making human reason king instead of Jesus? In making our feelings and our emotions king instead of Jesus? In making the broken desires of our heart king instead of Jesus? Because that's why Jude begins this letter where he does. In verse 1, Jude, a what? A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. There's a little bit of debate as to which Judah is who wrote this letter, but most people agree that it's the half-brother of Jesus himself. Yet in humility, that's not how Jude introduces himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He says, firstly, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word is doulos. It literally means slave. One who accepts Jesus as Lord in every part of their life. You see, it's pretty easy to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say. But the challenge for us is, are we going to be a people who actually live all of life, not just bits of it, all of life with Jesus as our Lord? You have been called. You are loved. And you will be kept. And from that firm gospel footing, we are called, and God calls each one of us, to contend for the faith, to wrestle for what is right, and to do so in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And we keep going, by his grace, all the way to heaven, for the sake of the lost, for the purity of God's precious church, for whom he gave his life, And for the glory of his name. So when you take a moment now, just in the quietness of your own heart, it's a call to all, if you're in Christ this morning. What is God calling you to contend for as we seek to stand for our Lord and Saviour? 
in this life. Take a moment to ponder that and then the band are going to lead us as we sing our last song together.